So Father, we just come to you this morning thanking you for your faithfulness. Lord, presenting ourselves before you as your word calls us to do. So Lord, we we just pray according to your word right now that we would offer our bodies to you as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you as our spiritual act of worship. And Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would still our hearts and quiet our souls as the psalmist calls us to do. That we would pause. Lord, and I ask that even in this moment we would be able to blot out from our minds superficial distractions. Blot out from our minds anything that would draw our attention or affection away from you, Lord, and center our hearts on yours. Quiet our souls, bring stillness to our spirit, Lord, that we would simply enjoy you and enjoy your word. So, Father, speak to us now through your word. Will you open up our hearts? Will you open up our minds? Will you open up our ears to hear what you have to say to us? And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, I'm going to invite you uh, to find your Bible and turn with me to Psalm chapter 62. That's where we're going to be going together this morning. If you're here today as our guest, my name's Taylor and I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. We're uh, honored to have you worshiping with us today. And the way we're starting out our summer together have been the last few weeks is by looking at uh, various psalms from the book of Psalms in a message series called the Songs of Jesus. So today, again, looking at Psalm chapter 62. Uh, Our staff meets every Tuesday morning at nine o'clock. We come together for our weekly staff meeting and we meet for about an hour and a half uh, because I believe any meeting longer than 90 minutes is a waste of time. Amen. And so um, uh, we we meet for about an hour and a half and we start out that that time together with a different staff member uh, leading a devotional each week. And so uh, several weeks ago, Dustin Allen, our associate pastor was leading our devotional time and we were coming off of the heels of of probably the busiest and most chaotic season we'd ever had uh, as a staff in the five-year history of our church family. We had uh, just come off of one year of COVID restrictions where we were having to have you register to attend services and masks and it felt like the rules were just arbitrary and changing every single week and there was just a new challenge that we were having to face uh, week in and week out. We had just come off the heels of 50 days of prayer and fasting together as a church family and we were hungry right? And we were tired, and we were just worn out. It was an incredibly filling season spiritually, but it just took a lot out of us as well uh, physically as we were just pursuing the Lord and pursuing His direction for our church family. We had just launched this third worship service, and so uh, Dustin, that particular morning, we came to staff meeting, and he said, what I want us to do is, is we're just going to take about 15 minutes, and we're going to duck into different corners of the office, and for 15 minutes, we're going to do nothing, like, we're just going to be quiet. We're just going to sit in silence in the presence of the Lord. It's like, we're not going to read scripture, not going to read devotional books, not going to pray out loud, not going to be listening to music. We're just going to sit in silence and just reflect on the goodness of God and who he is. And so uh, we were like, man, that sounds awesome. And we all uh, duck into different corners of the office. I go into my office and I shut the door and you sit down and this is cool for about five minutes, right? Like, man, this is really, really great. But then your mind starts to wonder. And I'm looking around my office and I'm thinking about things that I have to do. And we came back together a few minutes later and we all joked about how there were moments where we accidentally started to pray. Then it was like, oh, sorry, my bad, quiet, you know, right now, just gonna sit and, and, and listen. And man, we are just a generation that really struggles to be still. 
We are really just a generation that struggles to be silent and to be still. And more than that, we tend to be a generation that's really impatient. We're the generation that wants same-day delivery. We want instant grocery pickup. We want eight-minute abs. We want new kids by Friday. We want instant downloads. I mean, you really want to test your patience. Look at how you respond the next time you can't immediately connect to Wi-Fi. Right, like, I mean, we just really, that the smallest things, if we've got to wait in a drive through line for more than 10 minutes, the restaurant has failed because we have failed at fast food, right? Like anything longer than 10 minutes, we've, we've failed at the task and the intention of this. We struggle to be still and we struggle to be patient. But Psalm chapter 62 is a call to be still. It's a call to be silent and it's a call to wait on the Lord. We struggle to be still. We struggle to be silent. We probably struggle even more to be patient. Psalm 62 is a lot like Psalm 3 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago where David is writing this at a time where he's under a sense of immense stress. He's on the run. There's those who are after him. They're after his throne. His enemies are breathing out lies against him. And so this psalm is a psalm for those who are in seasons of anxiety, seasons of stress, seasons of relational strife. And the words of Psalm 62 are the types of words that we pray or the types of words that we sing when our hearts are overwhelmed and we need to reroute our confidence in the power of a sovereign God. The early church uh, father Athanasius has said of Psalm 62, against all attempts upon thy body, thy state, thy soul, thy fame, temptations, tribulations, machinations, defamations, say this psalm. Psalm 62 is written for those of us who are in seasons of stress, seasons of relational strife, seasons of spiritual warfare and attack. And when you're in a season of difficulty and you're waiting on the Lord, the wait can be agonizing. And oftentimes we're really tempted to speak up when we shouldn't. We're tempted to take matters into our own hands. And instead of waiting on the Lord and entrusting in the Lord, we might dig ourselves into a deeper hole because we try to solve the problem ourselves. But Psalm 62 is a call for us to wait. When you're paralyzed by stress, you're paralyzed by busyness, you're paralyzed by relational strife and spiritual warfare, it is God alone who has the power to bring calm and stillness to our souls. We hate to wait. But as we're going to see this morning, church, in Psalm 62, waiting itself is an act of worship. Waiting is worship because when we still ourselves and we calm ourselves in the presence of the Lord, this waiting is an act of faith in God. And it's as we wait on him, we demonstrate our faith in him because it's from him alone that we can quiet and still and calm our souls. It's only in him that we're going to find this peace. It's only in him that we're going to find this quiet. It's only in him that we're going to find this confidence. Psalm 62 is a call to wait. And so we're going to look at this this morning through Psalm 62 really by answering two specific questions. The first question is, what exactly are we waiting for? When we say that we're waiting on the Lord, what specifically are we waiting for? What is it that we're waiting for him to do on our behalf? And the second question is, how practically do we wait? So what specifically are we waiting for, and how is it that we actually still ourselves, quiet ourselves, and wait for the Lord to act? So Psalm 62, uh, let's read together first, just verses 1 and 2. David writes here, For God alone, everyone say alone, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone, everyone say alone. alone. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. 
So what are we waiting for? We see first this morning that we wait on God alone for salvation. We wait on God alone for our salvation. I really want to stress and emphasize that word alone, as in exclusive, as in no other, as in the one and only. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. And why is this? David tells us, because from him alone comes our salvation. So he alone, exclusively, he's our rock, he's our foundation. He alone, exclusively, he's our fortress, he's our shield, he's our defense, he's our covering. And because of this, David says, we shall not be shaken. Literally, we will not be moved because it is God himself who has saved us and is covering us and is shielding us and sustaining us. So then David goes on in verses three and four to talk about the actions of his enemies. He asks his enemies the question, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. So again, David is just worn out by the relentless attack of his enemies. He's once again on the run because of the attack on his throne. People are breathing out lies against him, threats against him. They're speaking the the worst form of lying against him, which is flattery. Flattery really is the worst form of lying because it gives a posture in someone's presence. Hey, I love you and I care about you and I'm for you and I support you. But as soon as they're gone, we start to throw them under the bus. And David knows that this is what he's experiencing. He knows that this is what he's enduring and it's wearing him down. And he really uh, allows himself to illustrate the passage for us here. He says, like a leaning wall or a tottering fence, my enemies are just beating it down over and over and over again. So you just imagine the picture here. If you've ever seen some sort of wire fence or metal fence that's maybe been up for 10, 15 years, but, but for two decades, uh, kids every single day, they're climbing on the fence, they're hopping over the fence. Well, all of a sudden, that fence doesn't look so sturdy. It might still mark a boundary. It might still separate you know, one yard from the next, but it starts to lean. It starts to totter. And that's the picture that David gives of himself. He's like, I'm like a wall on the verge of collapse. I'm like a fence that that just barely hanging on, barely standing up, and my enemies are battering this over and over and over again. And this was a real, physical, relational experience for David, but this is what you and I experience spiritually every single day. It's the relentless attacks of the enemy who comes after us day in and day out, who breathes lies against us, who constantly deals in deception. Satan is always writing checks that he cannot cash. He is always making promises that he cannot keep. He only tells you enough truth to destroy you. And this is how we feel sometimes. It's like, man, I'm just on the verge of collapse, and it's attack after attack after attack. So David calls us to root our trust in the Lord and to root our trust in him alone because it's from God alone that we find our salvation. From God alone, we find our salvation. Church, this is the miracle of grace, that our salvation comes totally and completely from God alone. Now, understand this morning, the good news of Jesus Christ, the message of the gospel, this message is not Jesus plus your good works. It is not Jesus plus your religious effort. It is not Jesus plus your best behavior. Church, the message of the gospel is Jesus, period. And any addition to that message is a lack of self, is is itself an expression lacking trust in the work of Jesus Christ, in the message of the gospel. We betray our own faith whenever we try to act like our religious deeds and efforts are necessary in order to accomplish our salvation. This is why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 4 verse 5, he says, And to the one who does not work. 
who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that is Jesus, his faith is counted as righteousness. Theologically, this is known to us as the doctrine of imputation. This is my favorite doctrine to study in all of Scripture. What imputation teaches us is that God sees the righteousness of Christ, and for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we've turned from our sins, repented of our sins, put our hope in salvation in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, God thinks of the righteousness of Christ as belonging to us. God credits the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account. So in our sin, we have overdrawn our account. We are delinquent. We are bankrupt. We are way behind in such a way that we could never make up. But then God, as we put our faith in Christ, he imputes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ to us. He credits it to our accounts. And and this is such good news for us because we have no hope in and of ourselves. There's no good work that we can do to make up for that deficit, but praise God at the cross, Jesus paid the debt of our sin, amen? And we get to rest in the work that he's done for us. We are not saved by Jesus plus anything else. We are saved by Christ and Christ alone. Even in John chapter six, Jesus has asked this question, what what good works should we be doing? That we could gain eternal life, that we could enter the kingdom of heaven, and what does Jesus respond? Your work is to believe. And so you hear that this morning, you say, well, so, so I do need to do a little bit of work. I've got to believe. Well, time out. Let's, this is where you need your whole Bible. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. It says we were dead in our sins. It says in verses 8 and 9, by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. So follow with me here for just a second, church. We were so dead in our sins You and I cannot even take credit for the faith that was required to call on Jesus for our salvation. That itself is a gift of grace. We are saved by God and God alone. We are saved through the work of Christ and the work of Christ alone. And we can take credit for none of this. And this is such an important message for us to hear because all of us deep down inside, in some capacity, even if you don't consider yourself a believer, don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, we are all seeking some form of salvation. Every single person, this is universal to the human experience, we are seeking some sort of ultimate reality. We are seeking some sort of ultimate joy, some sort of ultimate purpose, some sort of ultimate meaning or satisfaction in something, and we are all waiting on something to save us. So for some of us, we are waiting on our money to save us. We're waiting on our 401k to save us. We're waiting on the right house, the right car, the right boat to save us. We're convinced once I get to that point, I'm finally going to have that ultimate fulfillment. I'm finally going to have that ultimate reality, that ultimate joy, that ultimate satisfaction. Some of us are seeking salvation and waiting for salvation in a career. We're waiting for it in social status. We're waiting for it in sex or in our sexuality. We're waiting for it in substances. Some of us, God help us, you're waiting for your salvation from a political system. Good luck. Keep waiting. Some of us wait on salvation from a broken religious system. We're looking to a specific leader, a specific church, a specific pastor, a specific conference, a specific book. We're just waiting for that moment. And, and man, it's, it's so heartbreaking. Like a, a teenage girl who's gotten herself dressed up for prom waiting at the door for a date who simply isn't coming. We wait and we wait and we wait and we wait. We have to understand God alone can save. God alone can save. God alone brings us that ultimate significance that ultimate joy, that ultimate satisfaction. It's in Christ and Christ alone that we can be saved. Charles Spurgeon has said, if to wait on God be worship, to wait on the creature is idolatry. 
If to wait on God alone be true faith, to associate an arm of flesh with him is audacious unbelief. Every time we are waiting on something else or someone else other than Jesus to save us, we're committing idolatry. Anytime we are waiting on someone other than Jesus, something other than Jesus to save us, we demonstrate unbelief. God alone can save. Christ alone can save. Our salvation comes from God alone. So David says, before God alone, I will be silent because from God alone comes my salvation. He goes on in verses 5 through 8. Now he's going to address himself once again, as we've seen in previous Psalms the last few weeks. He's going to preach the gospel to himself, and then he's going to turn and preach it to others. Verse 5, he says, for God alone. Everyone say alone. There's that word again. Oh, my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only, everyone say only, is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rest my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So we wait on God alone for our salvation. Second, we wait on God alone for our protection. David says here that God is our rock and our salvation and our fortress. Then twice in verses 5 through 8, we're told that the Lord is also our refuge. So he's our shelter. He's our hiding place. He's our safe haven. And he repeats the refrain in verse 5 that he had spoken in verse 1. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. But, but God is not protection, church. You understand, he's not protection in the way that most of us are going to think about protection. He's not protection in the way most of us think about protection. We see from the circumstances of David's own life that being a follower of Jesus does not automatically mean you are exempt from struggle and suffering, right? Like we see it from David's own circumstances. He is in trouble. He's on the run. Being a follower of Christ, being under God's protection, it doesn't mean that we won't experience trouble. Just think about having a home security system. You know, that might serve as a deterrent for many to break into your home or to come cause damage to your home. But at the end, it's no guarantee. It's no guarantee that that someone's still not going to break a window and come into your house and take stuff that doesn't belong to them or try to cause you harm. This is no guarantee. Being a follower of Christ is no guarantee that we won't experience struggle. It's the promise that we'll have someone with us in the midst of it all. Someone who's going to see us through and who's going to carry us through. And so we need to make sure we have a a healthy biblical understanding of what we mean by protection. So we're going to look at a few New Testament passages here. I want you to turn with me in your Bible. uh, Matthew chapter 5. Um, We're going to look at verses 11 and 12 in the Sermon on the Mount, so Matthew chapter 5, and then we're going to flip over just a few pages, Matthew chapter 10, and then right after that, we're going to look at one more passage in Romans chapter 8. So Matthew 5, Matthew 10, Matthew 8, I want to look at all three of these passages because collectively, holistically together, they give us a, a really big overview and picture of what it means to be under God's protection, not just from an earthly perspective, but from an eternal perspective. So uh, Matthew chapter 5, again, we're going to start with verses 11 and 12. This is Jesus teaching his disciples uh, during the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew five eleven. Jesus says, blessed are you when, everyone say when, blessed are you when, So he's telling them to expect this is going to happen. Like you should expect this to happen. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely 
on my account. That's what David is enduring in this moment. That's what he's experiencing. And Jesus says in verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great. Where? In heaven. Eternal perspective. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now flip over a few pages uh, to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, we're going to read verses 26 down through verse 33. Jesus is talking about the type of opposition they're going to face from the enemy. You should expect these things. Verses 26 through 33, he says, So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. For you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Let me go back to verse 28 really quick here. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Listen to how Jesus talks to his disciples about persecution and suffering. He says, guys, this is the good news. Listen, the worst they can do is kill you. He wants them thinking with an eternal perspective. He said that there are certainly those who can cause you harm. There may be those who kill your body, but they don't control your soul. That this is a unique type of security because he's, he's telling them, listen, do not fear even death itself. Your heavenly father, he sees the sparrows who are worth a penny. How much more of, the, of, of us who are worth the life of Jesus Christ? He sees us. He's going to sustain us and carry us through. Now, one more. Let's look at the total eternal perspective here. Romans chapter 8, very famous passage here, verses 28 through 30. We're just going to see again, big picture from the backdrop of eternity. Romans 8, 28. Apostle Paul writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we know that for those who love God, all things, everyone say all things. That means good, that means bad, that means ugly, that means evil. Every attempt of the enemy. All things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, so we're talking eternity past here, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, now pay attention here, this is important. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is all past tense language. So our salvation is not just something that was secured in eternity past. It is something that has been secured for eternity future. So again, just follow the progression of all of this from Matthew 5 to Romans chapter 8. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is telling his disciples, expect this. Expect to be opposed. Expect others to revile you. Expect to be slandered. Expect people to utter all sorts of things falsely against you on my account. When this happens, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Then Matthew chapter 10, hey, don't worry about these jokers that can kill you. That's the worst they can do. If they do this, which is the ultimate evil, which is taking your life, that dispatches you immediately to the ultimate good, which is eternal life with Christ. Which is why Paul can say, we know with confidence that all things work together for good. Those whom he justified, he has, past tense, also glorified. 
Meaning that if you, friend, are in Jesus Christ, your standing before him is as secure as the seat of Jesus at his right hand. That's good news. That's really good news. So, so if God is our salvation speaks to our eternal state, then God is our protection speaks to our eternal security. If you are in Christ, you will not and cannot be lost. You cannot be lost. This is my annual public service announcement. That any doctrine, any theology, anyone who would say that your salvation can be lost, this is a lie from the mouth of Satan that was born in the pit of hell. There are those, you would say, well, well some did follow Christ and walk away, and yet the book of 1 John is clear. They went out from us because they weren't truly among us. No one who has truly repented of their sin, who is truly in Jesus Christ, will ever walk away, and there are none who Christ will ever let fall away. Jesus promises. He says, all who the Father has given me will come to me. They were foreknown. They were predestined. They were called. They were justified. They were glorified. All who the Father has given to me will come to me, and he says, and of all who come to me, I will never cast them out. Listen, our salvation is not predicated on our ability to hold on to God. It's predicated on his ability to hold on to us. And God in his grace does not keep an eraser next to the Lamb's book of life. If we are in Christ, that is permanent, forever, secure. If we have truly come to faith in him, he's our protection. Listen to how the language changes from verse 5 to verse 8. In verse 5, David, as we've seen over the last few weeks, he's preaching the gospel to himself. Be silent, O oh my soul. He's rerouting his confidence and his trust in the hope and the message of the gospel. Be still before the Lord. Be quiet before the Lord. From him alone comes my salvation. But then in verse 8, he starts preaching to the congregation. Psalm 62, verse 8. He says to those he's speaking to, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. This is why we learn to preach the gospel to ourselves, because eventually we want to preach it to others. And I wonder sometimes that the reason maybe we don't communicate the gospel to others as much as we should is because we're not communicating it to ourselves as much as we should. It's very difficult to give away something you don't have. So day in and day out, we learn to rehearse these truths. Be quiet before the Lord. Be still before the Lord, O oh my soul. He alone is my salvation. He alone is my rock. He alone is my refuge. He alone is my hope. He alone is my trust. And once we have resettled our hearts and our souls, we then give it away to others. Trust in him at all times, all you people. And this is how he rounds it out in verses 9 through 12. David says, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. So from God alone, we wait for our salvation. From God alone, we wait for our protection. And from God alone, we wait for our vindication. He will judge everyone according to his deeds. He will render to all according to their work. Verses 9 and 10, David lays it out for us. All of humanity, all of human effort, it is a breath and it's a delusion compared to the power of God. He notes how his enemies are those who are gaining wealth by unjust means through extortion. They, they fancy themselves powerful because of how much they've accumulated to themselves. And David says, this is all nothing before God. 
This is absolutely nothing. It's all vanity when it comes to our standing before God. So we don't put our trust in riches. That's why he says, even if your riches increase, do not put hopes in these things. First Timothy 6 warns us not to love money because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not going to save us on the last day. You are not going to stand before the Lord on the judgment day and use your 401k to cash in. You're not going to clear out your bank account and say, well, will this get me in? David's saying, do not put your trust in these things. We put our trust in God alone. He will render to all according to their deeds. We will all stand before the Lord on the judgment day and give an account for our life. Now, if you've been with our church family for the last couple months, you know that a few weeks ago, we wrapped up a message series from Matthew chapter 23 called Bad Religion. And we really saw for several weeks the warnings of Jesus in Matthew 23 against uh, this culture of religious judgmentalism. Of, of being condescending towards those who have fallen into sin, of, of being a church culture that harms sinners more than helps sinners. And, and yes, what we saw in Matthew 23, the warnings against these things. But here, church, is how I fear we have overcorrected in our modern culture. While we are called to shun this culture of religious judgmentalism, where we condescend others, we belittle others, we hurt others who seek to know the Lord, who have fallen into sin, while we need to stay away from that, we still have a responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ to hold one another accountable. And this is the game that we play sometimes in our modern culture is we have a brother or sister in the Lord who in love and grace and humility, they will come to us and point out an inconsistency in our lives. They'll point out patterns of sin and what do we hide behind? Don't you judge me. Don't you judge me. We revert to this 21st century individualistic religion, just me and Jesus. Only God can judge me. Do, do you understand what you're saying when you say that? I mean, again, friend, you, you can play that game this morning, but, but please do understand, he will judge you. He will render to all according to their deeds. We will stand before the Lord on the judgment day. Here's how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. He renders judgment according to our work. We've, we've all sinned, and we have to understand, listen, your sin is going to be paid for one way or the other. Either the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ has been credited to your account, and you've found salvation in him alone, or we're going to be stand and judged according to the deeds of our sin. So the question this morning for you is, who's paying for your sin? Are, are you going to put your faith in Jesus Christ? You're going to put your trust in Christ alone in the confidence that he alone has paid the price for your sin? Are you still going to have rent due on the judgment day? Because it's going to get paid for one way or another. But this is the good news for us this morning, is that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, your sin has been paid for, can be paid for, if you put your trust in Christ but we cannot dismiss the notion that one day we will be judged. Listen, that will help you feel better and less guilty about overlooking your sin in that moment. How's that going to work out for you on the judgment day? The day is going to come that we cannot hide behind that excuse any longer. We need to be able to receive the love and the correction of brothers and sisters in Christ who love us enough to tackle us before we walk off the cliff. This past Thursday, I was just sitting in my office with Dustin and Grayson, and we were talking about uh, something that had happened at a national level several years ago with a pastor who was removed from his position and just something in incredibly terrible that he had said to his congregation. And I looked both those guys in the eyes or sit in that room. I said, if you guys ever see me going that way, like you're ever concerned that I'm drifting, you better tackle me and knock me down. 
Like, like that is not just, that is not just your, your responsibility as a follower of Jesus. Like, out of love, we, we need to love each other enough to correct one another when we're drifting into sin because we will all one day stand before the judge. Are you going to be judged according to your deeds or are you going to be judged according to the perfection of Jesus Christ? And that's what he offers for you today. So that's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the Lord, for our salvation, for protection and vindication. So how do we wait? Practically speaking, what does it look like to wait for the Lord? Well, let's just look at what the passage says for us here this morning. It says again in verse 5, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. So how do we wait for the Lord? First, very simply, quiet your soul. Quiet your soul. I want to read this quote from Gene Fleming. This is from a book called Finding Focus in a Whirlwind World. This book was written in 1991. Okay, so just add 30 years of distraction to what we're about to read here, and, and let's consider it again in a modern context. It was written in 1991, but this is what was written there. We live in a noisy, busy world. Silence and solitude are not 20th century words. They fit the era of Victorian lace, high-button shoes, and kerosene lamps. Better than our age of television, video arcades, and distraction wired with earphones. But we have become a people with an aversion to quiet and an uneasiness with being alone. That's pre-smartphones. That's pre-streaming media, because we, we live in this cultural moment where even in our moments of quiet, even in our moments of silence, we tend to invite distraction. When are you ever just still in the presence of the Lord? When are you ever just quiet before Him? We're going to do this together here in just a few moments, and guess what? It's probably going to feel awkward, because we're so bad at this as a culture right now. We're, we're so bad at just, just pausing and being quiet, not saying anything, not going to listen to anything, just going to clear our hearts, going to clear our minds, quiet our souls before the Lord. The psalmist writes, one of the most famous psalms in all the Bible, Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. There's a direct correlation between our understanding of God and our willingness to be still. And could it be this morning that you've yet to understand and experience him for who he is because you won't just simply settle down and quiet down in his presence? Like, man, y'all, we just struggle to shut up in the presence of the Lord. We just struggle to keep our mouths closed and quiet, to still and to calm our hearts in his presence. I just want to encourage you to build this rhythm into your life. Before you sit down, you know, we have this uh, a devotional life, and, and oftentimes we call this shorthand a quiet time, but, but it feels like as the years have gone on, our quiet times as a culture have become less quiet. Like we've always got a book, we've always got a devotional, we've always got a resource, we've always got a podcast, we've, we've got like seven different Bible studies we've committed to, so we're trying to knock those out. We've got worship music that we're listening to, and even when we have one of these quiet times, like we can't have it for goodness sake without sharing with the world that we're having it. Got to tell everybody. Like, it, it didn't happen if you didn't post it online. You know, it's just, this is kind of the world that we're living in. I want to just challenge you, as you have your devotional rhythms, before you open a Bible, before you open a devotional book, before you do anything, just sit there for five minutes and be quiet. Just still yourself in the presence of the Lord. It's very, very difficult to hear the voice of the Lord when we are constantly inviting the distractions of the world. Let's go on a crusade to make quiet times quiet again. I think that's a, a good and noble task for us in our busy culture. And second, as we quiet our soul, relocate your trust. We're all seeking salvation in something, and we all have seasons where we tend to drift. And we are seeking salvation in things that are not Christ. 
So we need to relocate our, our trust. We need to recognize that trusting in anything other than Jesus, waiting on anything other than Jesus for our salvation, this is idolatry and unbelief. We need to recognize that for the sin that it is. So it's sitting down as we quiet our souls. Lord, I confess I've been putting way too much trust in my money, putting way too much trust in my job, putting way too much trust in my marriage, in my kids, in my family, in my friendships, in my vocation, in sex, in sexuality, in substances. I'm putting all of my confidence in these things. I put way too much trust in the political system. I put way too much trust in the religious system. It's confessing that before the Lord as idolatry and unbelief and then asking him, help me to trust in you and you alone. Help me to remember that my salvation has come from you and you alone, nothing that I've done within myself. Help me to remember that you and you alone can carry me and sustain me and protect me. Help me to know that it is you and you alone from whom I will find vindication on the day of judgment. We relocate our trust. And then last, very simply, pour out your heart. This is what we see over and over and over again in the Psalms, and it's what we find in verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. He is a safe place for you to pour out your heart and to be honest and, and vulnerable before him. And so, so listen, I, I know across this room this morning, many of us are like, man, I'm, I'm not good at prayer. I'm not strong in this. And so, listen, don't ever feel shame in, in using resources to help you. You know, a few resources I would recommend right away. Uh, newer series that's come out called Every Moment Holy. It's just prayers for these uh, just mundane, everyday life moments where we're kind of like, hey, where's the Lord in this? And it's just helping us to learn to pray continually throughout the course of a day. Um, Book of Common Prayer 2019 from our brothers and sisters in the Anglican Church, an incredible uh, resource. Um, Tim Keller actually has a, a, a small devotional book called The Songs of Jesus that inspired the title of this message series and uh, just short reflections on the Psalms and a short prayer to go with it every day. But one of my favorite resources to use uh, in, in my daily prayer is uh, a collection of Puritan prayers called The Valley of Vision. And I've been using this for about five years now. You, you, you almost won't find me going anywhere without this. This is a companion for me in the mornings and in, and in the evenings. And it usually makes a couple of appearances during the day. And because um, I'm not always good with prayer. And sometimes I need kindling. I need inspiration to, to get the fire going a little bit. And I want to read this prayer uh, called the Valley of Vision because I believe it's a great example for us of what it means to pour out your heart and to relocate your trust in, a, in the season of difficulty. Not before you get into it, not as you're coming out of it, but while you are in the middle of the mess. And so uh, I just want to read this over us together this morning, and then we're going to have a few moments where we're going to put into practice what we just saw. We're going to have a few moments of silence, and then we're going to relocate our trust, and then we're going to pour out our hearts as we prepare our hearts and minds to come to the table for the Lord's Supper. So I want to read this from the Valley of Vision. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly. Thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, and that the valley 
is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. So just bow your heads with me here for just a moment. We're going to take two minutes here just to be silent. Just to be silent, to be quiet before the Lord. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to pray anything specific. I just want us to take two moments clear our hearts, clear our minds, be silent before the Lord. relocate our trust. So this is equal parts confession and request. We are going to confess to the Lord where we have been seeking salvation in the wrong things. Lord, I put my trust in my job. Maybe put it in money. Put it in politics. Put it in the religious system. Put it in the pleasures and the things of this world. Material possessions. Just confess to the Lord where we have misplaced our trust and then relocate it to him. Lord, we will trust in you and you alone. From you alone comes our salvation. From you alone comes our protection. From you alone comes our vindication. finally this morning, just pour out your heart. We see over and over and over again in the Psalms, what burdens you today? What are you carrying? What's clinging to you that's keeping you from Christ? What sin? What burden? What challenge? What obstacle? Pour out your heart before the Lord. He's a loving Father who invites us. Tell Him what you're thinking. Tell Him what you're feeling. Tell Him what you're hearing. Tell Him the lies that you're believing. Pour out your heart before Him. Let me just pray this exhortation over you from verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. 
pour out your heart before him, for he, our God, is a refuge for us. So Father, we thank you that you're a safe place that we can come to, that we can pour out our hearts to you, Father, that we can confess our sin to you, that we can find salvation in you. So as we come to the table this morning to to be reminded of this, Lord, help us to root and to anchor our trust in you and you alone. Be glorified as we sing. Be glorified as we come to the table. Be glorified as we worship your name. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.